This week's Eldritch Lawcast, we take a deep dive into the rules and lore of Vecna and discuss the effect Stranger Things has had on the hobby. All that and more right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one D&D podcast in all the planes. That's right, Vecna gave a hand and an eye to get this podcast off the ground. That's how great it is. My name is Ben Byrne, and I am here, as always, with Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin, James Hake. And, James, I have a question for you. I want to sink your teeth into a little bit. I thought this was a great question from Victoria, giving us great starter questions each week, which is is what was the first mistake or first important thing you felt you needed to learn when you started DMing tabletop RPGs? Ooh, very good question. The first mistake I ever made was planning too much of my campaign world from the beginning. And it wasn't it wasn't an obvious mistake either because I I was very dedicated to this campaign planning and I really quite enjoyed it. I, I I very meticulously built out the world and I loved it and it created a very good bedrock for the campaign. Um, I only realized my error oh, probably about a year or more into this campaign when I realized that I'd gotten far too invested in my own world building and not invested enough in the stories that my players wanted to tell. And it certainly wasn't a bad campaign, but I, I lost the plot as a DM, uh, ironically, by becoming so slavishly devoted to, m- to my own plot. Um, and and from, from here on out, unless I'm writing a hardcover adventure where you need to have that sort of uh, clear world building set in stone from the very beginning, um, I'm, I'm much more relaxed about it all. Sure. Did you? There was no room for the players to to explore or experiment. They weren't able to feel like they were invested in the world because you had too strong an idea of what everything was. No, no, it's actually not that at all. Um, because I, in in my current group, for example, uh, they really like how concrete the world lore is, and it lets them ground their characters in that. No, what happened was really much more behind the scenes in my own mind. Is I spent so much of my prep time thinking about my own world and my own villains and my own plots that I wasn't receptive to uh, uh, altering it uh, and rolling with the punches as the players took action. Uh, it was kind of it, it was kind of like they were you know trying to tunnel through concrete rather than digging through soft loamy soil. Gotcha. Uh, Sean Merwin, what do you think your first big learning or mistake was when you started GMing tabletop RPGs? I think it's it's sort of similar to what James just said in the fact that I didn't realize that I wasn't creating a story. I was facilitating a story and I needed to take a step back and let the players do what the players wanted to do. What I loved in the game wasn't necessarily what they loved in the game. And I needed sure. to take into account more their desires as opposed to mine. It wasn't that the game master's desires aren't important. It's that they're equally important to what the players want. For sure, yeah. It was, was there a moment where you kind of came to that learning? Was there a moment in game where you were like, oh, oh, I see what's happened here. I need to adjust with my uh, planning for next time. It, 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 it wasn't that hard a lesson except for, you know, my players were very receptive and they were always after the session. We had a great time. We had a great time. And the first time that they didn't say we had a great time, I stopped and I thought, am I being overly, let's take a step back and look at 
maybe why they didn't have a great time. And then I sure. you know, replay it in my mind and realize, oh, I was really kept pushing this at them when it was obvious that this is what they really wanted. Sure. So, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, Dale Kingsmill, first mistake and or big learning when you started GMing. I feel like there were just so many for me to choose from, but... Um, <laughs> You know, one that does strike me is that I tried to dive in immediately with a really huge group of players. Um, and I it's not I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with with that, but um when you haven't yet kind of exercised the DM muscles, it makes things a little bit harder, particularly when it comes to um balancing out playtime between your players and making sure that the ones who aren't currently active don't get bored um so i think that was that was a big lesson that i had to learn the uh, the other thing that does strike me is um having to learn that it's okay to give yourself time like you don't have to immediately have an answer ready for every single thing your players bring up they can ask you a question and you can take a second to think about it it's okay mm. go mm. easy on yourself mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the big mistake I had early on was, I suppose, not dissimilar to to what James said in terms of having a real concrete idea of what the world was, but sort of uh, morally judging the player characters when they made decisions in game that I didn't think aligned with how quote unquote heroes should act. Mm. Um, and it, it it's something that I have to admit still bothers me if the players try to position themselves as heroes of the story, but do. Uh, uh, objectively horrible things like murdering defenseless uh, captives or whatever it happens to be. But I think that you need to uh, have some level of detachment as the GM and just let the players have fun how they want to have fun um, within your hard boundaries, obviously. Bit of news to go through this week. First and foremost, some Eldritch Lawcast news. Some <gasps> news for the podcast no way. itself. I know. Bit, 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 bit. Breaking news coming in right now um, from myself. Um, we have decided to, starting next week, stream the recording of the Eldritch Lawcast live on Twitch. Um, uh, we have a Twitch channel. It's twitch.tv slash ghostfire underscore official um, is our official ghostfire Twitch channel. Um, and we were like, well, we should stream something. So I was like, why don't we stream the Eldritch Lawcast? So the recording time uh, is at 7 p.m., Eastern Daylight Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, 9 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. You're welcome, Australians. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Hopefully I've given enough uh, uh, times there where you can, um, you know, work out where it is for you specifically in your part of the world. Um, uh, so might, might add an extra dynamic. We'll be taking questions from the chat if people want to jump in there so an extra way to sort of if interact give with the questions podcast. in the chat I mean if yeah exactly well we need questions to be able to answer them so we won't extract um, them from you forcefully but <laughs> <laughs> I am taking questions from the chat at this time um uh, it will be a little bit more rustic uh, than the normal episodes we have uh, a little bit of a pre-show discussion post-show discussion which is really us just talking about our weekend. So it's nothing too exciting. Um, but if you want all that sick early repartee as we wake up and drink our coffees, uh, at least for the Australians, um, you can join us uh, again, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, 9 a.m. Australian Eastern. Um, but if you still want uh, to just listen to the edited episode, it will be at the same time as it has always been. So there's no change to that format if you still just want to listen to it on YouTube and or Spotify, Apple, whatever it happens to be. 
So we look forward to seeing you then. Um, I think that's all I have to say on that. So speaking of things that I have to say, I also have to talk about <laughs> uh, Aurora, Age of Desolation. Oh. The Kickstarter uh, is finishing by the time you're hearing this, I think in maybe two days. Ooh. There'll be a link down in the show notes uh, if you're listening to this on YouTube or you can find it in the show notes on any Apple or uh, other I don't know why I said Apple specific devices. You might be listening to this on an Android. I don't know, um, yeah. or on a or on a something else. Anyway, Elvis um, is in the pocket of Big Apple. <laughs> I can't believe this, uh, Sean. How do you feel coming into the closing moments of your Kickstarter? Very, very excited. Um, I'm glad for you know the response we've had so far. I've been hitting the podcast circuit, talking about it in various other locations. So you can catch me on Between Two Turns and the Gnomecast and a few other places where I've been spilling little details here and there about what's what's going to be in it. But we've been doing some playtesting and polishing and some additions and you know, some thinking. And it's all coming together very well. Very excited to be able to share it uh, with with the public as soon as as soon as possible. Mm. I'm super excited. We just actually give me two seconds. Uh unlocked the um, uh, 400,000 uh, stretch goal, uh, which Woo! is this giant. Uh, I know this is great for audio. This thing, I I <laughs> cannot do it justice how much I love this quote-unquote miniature um, in particular. It is absolutely amazing. And there's so, I don't know if the camera will pick this up, but there's so many details, like little skeletons hanging off his back and um, the shard scale kind of busting through his chest and different things. He's got dragon leather, it looks like, for his, um, for his little... Uh, a loincloth there. So um, this is super exciting. Uh, Kickstarter ends, I think I'm going to say two days after this will go up, uh, maybe two and a half. So if you're one of the people who listens to the podcast early, um, go check it out. There'll be a link, like I said, in the show notes. How does it feel to have so many cool creatures rendered in tactile miniature form like this? Yeah, it's all, it, it's very uh. spiky as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. Speaking of spiky things. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of spiky things, to keep this Dante is a good a day for bit. segues. This is really it's powerful. Yes. <laughs> Uh, we have a little bit of general news. Uh, speaking of reheating things, uh, get the microwave out, throw in the news from last week. Beep, 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 beep. As we always do. As we always do. Uh, the Vecna dossier. You're dropped. really making us sound like the number one D&D podcast here. <laughs> That's that we are, right? Because where else do you get sick, microwaved? Uh, is sick a good thing in all vernaculars? I'm not quite sure. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm going to stop uh, vamping here and start talking about the Vecna dossier, uh, which released uh, basically Speaking for free. Speaking of sick, microwaved things. If you're uh, signed Ooh, up yeah. to D&D Beyond. Um Dale, are you a Vecna fan? Did you take a look at this? Do you feel excited about uh, your opportunity to run Vecna in your D&D campaign? I don't know if I can call myself a Vecna fan. That feels like, um, you know, I want to be an achiever like Bad Horse. But um, no, I I think it's fun. I think it's a lot of fun looking at it. Um, I mean, this is going to sound negative, but I need you to bear with me. I look at it and I think of all the different things that I can change for it. 
You know what I mean? Sure. Like um, it, that sounds like this is bad and I want it to be different. Um, and I can understand how it comes across that way. But what I mean is I look at this and I find so many different little pieces of it inspiring. Um, and, you know, that's so much better than because, because I, again, we all know this. We know this by now. I will always rewrite the stat block. I can't help it. It's just it's in my blood. But I would much rather rewrite a stat block that I'm inspired by. You know, sure. little things like my favorite thing on it is Afterthought, his his dagger that, you know, he makes little swipes with and uh, and it does a bunch of necrotic damage and, you know, you get you get some kind of like necrotic uh, sort of almost Lord of the Rings Vorpal woundy thing going on where you take ongoing necrotic damage. And I look at that and I'm like, how can we make this more nasty? How can we make this... <laughs> even more terrible. I just, I, I look at it, I'm like, what if they couldn't get rid of it? What if it did less damage every round, but they can't get rid of it unless they use remove curse? <gasps> Ooh, I want them to think that it's, <laughs> I want them to think it's not a big deal. And then for it to build up over time, like an afterthought, uh, it's just good. It's fun. Yeah, that that is a great idea. And that's, I was thinking very much along those lines uh, in the sense that, Vecna historically is the lich, right? He's the first big, bad magic using, not just magic using, but almost the the avatar of magic itself. And so you want a creature that is almost impossible to hurt with magic. You want a mm. creature that can disrupt the way that magic is used against it. You want a creature that once you are hit, you feel it for a long time. And you don't know what's happening. Uh, that's why I like the the going away from using just spells and, and using abilities that characters won't be able to just look and say, oh, yeah, he just hit me with counter spell. So I know exactly what that does. No, this isn't a spell counter spell. This is dread counter spell. Now, of <laughs> course, now that the stat block is public, everyone is going to know exactly what it does. But as Dale said, we can change it up. We can make it different. We can do these things that would still scare players who have memorized this stat block in preparation for the game that they're about to play. Also, I just have to say how much I love Dread Counterspell and Fell Rebuke. I love a good, scary, bad guy reaction. Mm. Ooh, it just mm -hmm. it gives me so much pleasure. <laughs> But also his like his ability to basically misty step. It's called I don't have it in front of me. Like necrotic move or whatever. Vile it's called. teleport. But it's uh, it, it's great that it just it's like yeah, it does whole bunch of necrotic damage to whoever's close to him where he teleports to. But if a single creature takes that necrotic damage, Vecna just like heals himself eighty hit points. Which I'll be honest, at level twenty, I don't know if that's a lot of hit points or not. But it feels like a lot of hit points for him to just every turn be bamping himself back up to. James, are you a, a, a fan of this stat block? Have you had a chance to look through it? I'm a huge Vecna fan. In fact, Vecna was the the big bad of my second ever D and D campaign. Um, in a in a setting where uh, resurrection spells. Uh, simply didn't exist. We were playing with a, I guess now it's kind of classic, the classic Epic Six rule set, in which sixth level was uh, the, the top off point for third edition D&D. And so by that point, no one was able to get uh, any resurrection spells. And his whole goal was basically to, to bring back uh, people people from his past. This was, this was very much a sort of uh, 
I, I will tinker with Vecna, but in a backstory way instead of a uh, instead of a mechanical way. Mm. Um, and so the hand and the eye kind of you know they they came into play, but it wasn't in the same way that oh, Cass cut the the hand off of Vecna using the sword of Cass and, and stuff like that. Um, but it, ever since I've had an incredible uh, sense of attachment to this villain, and it, it was just like Sean said, it's because he is the Lich. Um, honestly when when i made vecna my my big bad in that campaign i could have made him any lich but even then as a fairly greenhorn dnd player the name vecna had meaning to me and as i was tinkering with the story and making up my own stat block it was like this this character as much as i've changed it from the source material is still uh, at its heart vecna to me and that name meant something to the players as well who had an inkling of of all of that lore and so to see it writ out here uh, in in full CR above 20 glory, uh, it, it just feels really nice. It feels warm and fuzzy uh, in a way that I don't think Vecna makes most people feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> Only a DM. Only a DM would have that happen to them. Yeah, the, the yummy, yummy chocolate milk that is Vecna. Mm. Um I don't want to. I don't want the phrase "yummy, yummy" and Vecna in the same sentence ever again. I think uh, you touched on it there a little bit, James, because I like I don't have a historical affinity for Vecna. Um, I wasn't playing D anD D when he was big in the mythology. I couldn't even tell you when I realized that he. I think maybe Critical Role in in Campaign One, um, him being the big bad villain was where I first heard the name Vecna and started to clue into him being part of the mythology. And I did ask Dante this the other day. I was like, what's the difference? But And this is exactly how I asked it too. What's the difference between Vecna and a Sererac, right, in terms of like, because before Vecna, before I was aware of Vecna, um, a Sererac kind of filled that role of the big bad lich within the the fifth edition universe being the big bad behind Tomb of Annihilation. But I think he, I mean, he's on the cover of the the um, DMG, so he's kind of been around a little bit. Um, and uh, uh, Dante's response, and apologies, Dante, if I don't quite represent you right, he said, well, he's the first Lich. Like, that's what separates him from other villains. I was like, what does he want? And Dante's like, to to, to, to be a Lich, to be evil. Um, and I'm like, okay, all right, fair enough, I guess. But my question is, like, why would you feature Vecna as the big bad in your campaign? What separates Vecna from other villains? Well, and I, I think you, you touched the heart of why uh, even as as someone fairly new to D&D, I wanted to put my own spin on the lore is because I needed him to want something. I needed him to want to bring back the family that he lost to plague centuries ago and you know, was willing to crack open the world like an egg to do so. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I think Dante touched on something very, very good is that uh, people who are playing D&D now uh, maybe don't just want a lich for the sake of it being a lich. They want a lich for the sake of it having some tragedy uh, that they'll need to unravel or at least some other sort of motivation. Mm. It is interesting that that uh, Aserarak is kind of the lich, or it has been anyway until until Vecna rode in on the scene on his soul-powered motorcycle. Uh, because I, I feel like unless I'm deeply mistaken, prior to fifth edition, he was always kind of just the, the demi-lich, the skull with gems in the eyes. And it wasn't until the fifth ed DMG that we saw him as, you know, that, that crowned lich that, uh, that takes up so much cover real estate. 
Was well, here's a question: Was because he he didn't get a name? I don't think he might be named within the the DMG, or maybe the the they do a little blurb for the cover art inside mm-hmm. each of the books. So maybe he was named in that. I'm yes. not sure. Um, okay, so there there goes the question, which was: Did we know it was a, a Sererac when that yes. book came out, or was it not until Tomb? Um, you know, it's sh- interesting that all this um, you know intertwining of the narrative with the with the um, character monster. A bit of both. Um, it's interesting that that's coming up because it, it actually, uh, when I did my um, my monster madness uh, on Twitter a thousand years ago, I don't want to talk about the timeline, um, but I did a March Madness for monsters from the uh, from the monster manual, and everyone on my Twitter voted for for what monsters they wanted to see me do videos of and and redo stat blocks for, and one of the winners was a lich. And it was the one that I immediately had a lot of ideas for, but it's also the one video I still haven't made yet because I keep finding myself, rather than just making a stat block, it keeps becoming a full story, keeps becoming like a whole adventure arc Um, because I think that that really is an important element of of a really good lich bad guy is that you have to have a really good backstory because just a wizard who is undead doesn't feel like enough. There's always got to be something deeper to it. Um, So it's interesting that that's come up with you as well. There's a couple cool things about Vecna. First of all, I will give you a little quiz. First edition D and D. What was the name of the magic system? Uh, what what do they call the magic system in D and D? I know, I know. Say oh, it, I say it. Yes, Vancian. No, Vancian. Named after who? Jack Vance. Jack Vance. Jack Vance. What's how? How do you spell Vance? V A N C E. Boy, that's that's five four or five letters that also make up Vecna. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So so Vecna's backstory is is you know long in coming in in AD and D, but by by AD and D time, Vecna had already sort of graduated out of things that you would fight, right? His hand and his eye were were the the relic, the artifact that you did cool things with, but people could fight him, but you were he, he was almost at god level at that point. Uh and it, I think in 3rd edition he was officially a god. Uh mm-hmm. he was the god of secrets. So, uh he's not something that a lot of players would actually have fought like they would fight a Sararak who was in a specific adventure. There were adventures that dealt with Vecna, but they were very high level, very uh and very poorly written in some cases or not <laughs> written in a way that was easy to engage characters with like uh die vecna die or some of these old like this one uh what I a title remember as which well. adventure was exactly exactly uh basically if you're playing player characters vecna shows up and kills you in box text and then <laughs> other players need to come in and yeah, right so th- that's the sort of that's the way he was used, which didn't make it sort of fun for players. Whereas now we have a little bit more agency for the players to deal with things like that. Uh, but, you know, it, just in terms of cool stories, his story is the best. Uh, his mom was a witch 
and the magic users, the mages of the world did not like that. So they killed her, but he had some magical abilities. So they took him in and made him a scribe sort of type person. But then things would whisper to him and this voice told him how to become more powerful. What that voice was, was never really codified. Uh, I wrote some third edition adventures that said the serpent, which is this voice that talked to him, was actually magic. It was the power of magic itself that was trying to get back at the gods for imprisoning magic. And so they were using Vecna. The magic was sort of whispering to and using Vecna to get back at the gods. Uh, But there, there were also, you know, Asmodeus, some people said, was the serpent who was whispering to uh, to Vecna. So there's all these cool mythological stories that you could uh, do with him. I've changed but my mind. I am a Vecna one. fan now. <laughs> Sean, that's so cool. I, di- I didn't know you had that, a hand in that. That's so dope. Yeah, but uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So, yeah, you, but it's that, it's that sort of the first one. So you could do lots of different things with it. Uh, mm-hmm. As opposed to just following the the story, as we've said, of this lich doesn't want to die, or this wizard doesn't want to die, so he becomes a lich. Whoopie did it do? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let, let's make the story really uh, resonate. That yeah, I, I love that story of like it. Like I was, my mind kind of reading over Vecna's law uh, in the last few days and weeks was like, oh, maybe it was Orcus talking to him. Like that seems to make sense as the, to my understanding in the law, the only other creature that has kind of ascended death, um, in a manner of speaking, um, according to Dante. Um, but uh, uh. I love that idea of it being like magic manifesting itself. And I think if I was to run Vecna in my own campaign, I don't think I would have Vecna as uh, a lich or even the first lich. I would run Vecna as the lich, you know, like lichdom is not something that's known about uh, within the the world of the campaign. And slowly the players hear about the eye of Vecna and the hand of Vecna, which, you know, the Vecna now has so much exposure as of the last couple months that that's not really going to be a huge mystery for players anymore. Maybe you rename it and pick different body parts, the foot of Vokna and the nose of Vokna. I don't know. Anyway, um, the, you know, and then just slowly as the campaign develops, they just start to hear this myth about this individual who uh, just, you know, would not die, refused to die, could not be killed uh, for whatever reason, and the truth slowly gets unveiled as they go through the levels and eventually, um, you know, the the main villain is revealed towards the end. I think uh, I didn't watch it in detail, but I think the first season of Critical Role also did a really good job of Vecna as this villain that's revealed over time. It's not like from the start of the campaign, hey, this is who you're fighting. It's this um, long game kind of feel to it. Um, Did anybody read through the adventure, which I think was called um, Don't Say Vecna? which we're in trouble now because we've been saying it quite a bit. Um, uh, I didn't read through it in detail. It just looked kind of like an excuse to fight Vecna. Did anybody else take a look through it? <laughs> well, it, it, is it the adventure that the, uh, the Stranger Kids thing, that the Stranger Things kids ran through? It might be. I didn't know. No. That didn't click for me. Oh, it's no, not. But it's it not. definitely is the adventure yeah. that the Stranger uh, Kids thing did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I messed this all up, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> it was really hard to say it wrong. I thought I could just get in and out. It was hard. The Stranger Kids. The, the, str- the, the Stranger, stranger kids. Things kids, guys. Come on. Who would mess up something like that? The Otter Adults. Um, 
<laughs> Speaking of Stranger Things, uh, I, I didn't put this on the run sheet, but I thought that it would still be an interesting kind of topic to touch on. Uh, I don't think we'll go into spoilers for season three or four, sorry, season four. Um, so James, fret not if you still haven't watched it. Um, I I'm just kind of curious, you know, I think it's a, I think uh, Wizards have been a little bit coy of like, you know, oh, Stranger Things happened to be using Beckner as well. I think it's fairly obvious there's some sort of cross-marketing um, going on here, um, whether it was Netflix that said, we want to use Vecner, and Wizards were like, great, or whether it was Wizards who said, you should use Vecner, and Stranger Things were like, great, whichever way it went. Um, I'm just kind of curious to talk about the the impact Stranger Things has had on D&D as a hobby because the first season I think was 2016 and it was kind of that one-two punch of Stranger Things and Critical Role both sort of hitting around the same time I think that caused that big explosion um, of D&D. I don't think any of you got into into D&D off the back of Stranger Things but what was I suppose your like were, were any of you fans of Stranger Things uh, when that first season hit? Yeah, the, I loved the first season of Stranger Things. It was a, it was a huge deal. Um, I, I wasn't particularly enamored with, whoa, they're playing D&D. &D. <laughs> um, just because, I, I don't know, I'm a huge nerd. I'm surrounded by people who play D&D. &D. <laughs> Critical Role had already happened. I was like, okay, it's, it's sure. exposed to pop culture. Um, but no, it was just a really good show. Uh, all those kids were so good. And and uh, David Harbour and Winona yeah. Ryder. And yeah. ah, they're all amazing. Yeah, I think it was it was excellent storytelling uh, and hit just the right time, just the right audience. And and like James, the D&D part of it was like, OK, that's cool. Uh, and, you know, it showed that it showed the sort of imagination that this game brings out in people, expands and goes with you up into adulthood, because you could tell that the mm. people who wrote this and who produced this played as kids. And we are now getting the fruits of that play in the series that we're watching. And I thought back to E.T., mm. the movie E.T., which is kids on bikes, right, fighting mm -hmm. the, this power. In E.T., they play D&D. &D. Uh, and so, you know, th those parallels really, you know, spoke to me in terms of nostalgia-wise. You know, when I was a kid, I watched E.T., and now as an adult or one whose body tells people that I am an adult, even though my mind is not even close, uh, <laughs> that, that, that those kinds of stories still resonate, are still there, uh, and are still fun for everybody. Actually, you know, the thing that did jump out at me about the D&D &D bit is that they weren't exactly lionizing D&D. &D. It's like, this is a great game that everyone should play. Not a big advertisement, but they, they didn't really treat it like some sort of shameful nerd thing. These, mm. these kids were definitely dorks, but they, they didn't, you know, they didn't make them feel bad for being dorks. They were underdogs and we liked them. They played D&D &D and they had a good time and, and playing D&D &D led to them figuring out the mystery. You know, the, the Duffer Brothers and I graduated from the same alma mater and current Wizards of the Coast uh, game designer Mackenzie DeArmas also graduated from the same school. So there must be something D&D &D in the water there, which is funny because it took me three years of going to that school to find a D&D &D group. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like the the first season when they're playing D&D, &D, it, it wasn't necessarily a how great is D&D. &D. I mean, I think it was, but it was also an homage back to E.T. is sort of what my impression of it was because my earliest memories of um D&D &D, being aware of D&D &D as a thing was Stranger Things 
and seeing my older brother play D&D with his friends around the kitchen table with the exact same atmosphere as as it's presented on uh, ET with the pizza boxes and all the lights turned off except for the one light above the kitchen table and me going, can I play? And him saying no. Uh, So... Um, Get wrecked. So it feels oh, like so the, sad. <laughs> I feel like the the um, the popularity of D and D out of Stranger Things was almost uh, incidental. It was like people were latching on to the the Duffer Brothers' passion for this um, for this game for this uh, IP. But I don't think it was included as a cynical like let's get everybody to to play D and D sort of yeah. Uh, deal. Yeah. I, I'm just going to the slightest spoiler for the this current season. I <sighs> loved the juxtaposition of D&D and a basketball game because right. people can understand a basketball game. You know, it's more known in popular culture, but the excitement of both of those things happening at the same time yeah. spoke to me because I loved sports and I loved D&D and I would get the sports people saying, why do you go play that weird game with those weird people? <laughs> and I would get my, my gaming friends say, why do you go play that weird game with those weird people? And it was because <laughs> they're both games. You get to play them both with other people and work as a team and you know, try to strive and, and be better than, than you're, you think you can be and, you know, make these great stories, whether it's at the table itself or because of what happened during a a sports game. And it it all comes together to me. And I I could see them trying to show that, that excitement happening in tandem. Mm. Mm. Play is fun, no matter what shape it takes. Uh, I'm curious, Sean, how you feel Stranger Things this season has kind of represented the satanic panic, which is something that they're touching on in Stranger Things, I think, for the first time, despite uh, it being represented in each season up until now. Is that, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm sure you weren't personally chased with pitchforks down a, a country road or anything like that, but was that kind of similar to how you feel or do you think the show is playing it up a bit? It depends on your experience. I think in some cases, some people would say, oh, yes, it's way over the top. And some people would say, yeah, that's exactly it. I, you know, I just said my, my sports team friends were all like, why are you doing all that weird stuff? And they might not have said mm. satanic, but you know, I lived through the 60 Minutes episode with Gary Gygax trying to defend mm. the game. And, and I saw Mazes and Monsters where Tom Hanks played whatever that was. <laughs> uh, and and it, <laughs> what's important to, to remember, though, it wasn't just D&D, right? It was heavy metal music. It was sure. lots of things were, were satanic. And it was just all a bunch of hogwash, of course. But uh, it just showed where society was. And where, you know, we still see it, right? It's like Christians against Miss Marvel, uh, now Christians against sure. a- anything that isn't Sunday school. So it's, it's just kind of strange. And it's one of those things where know your history because often you are at risk of repeating it. The one other thing I just quickly want to touch on with uh, Stranger Things, and I'm, uh, uh, I swear, jo- James, your your anxiety level for getting spoiled can go down in a moment. But just with that, uh, that, um. 
that session that you were talking about, Sean, where they juxtapose it with the basketball game, what that reminded me of is uh, folks' anxiety around and, and things are about to, this is about to be a hot take here. Um, folks' anxiety around the quote-unquote Matt Mercer effect where, you know, mm. like your D&D game doesn't need to be so theatrical or, or you, you shouldn't expect your DM to live up to Matt Mercer's DMing or you shouldn't expect your players to live up to the Critical Role crew's, um, uh, you know, playing of the game either, their, their deep role-playing. And obviously for Stranger Things, it was a scripted production that was shot to be exciting. But to me it was just like, Man, that's how I want to play Critical Role. Uh, Critical Role. That's how I want to play D&D. There you go. There's the Scotch oh, take. That's real. That yeah. 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 That's the, uh, the Scotch tape effect taking effect right there. Um, you know, that's how I want to play D&D is I love to get up and jump around and, and put on the voices and really try to pull the players into the world of the game that we're playing and get them as excited uh, to play as if it was a sports event that we're all, you know, rah-rah getting hyped about. And I'm just curious, like, is that folks, do, do other folks uh, on this panel have similar experiences of wanting to play the game like that? Or do you prefer a much calmer experience uh, where it's kind of sit down and maybe more strategic or? I don't know. I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I watch other people play and compare myself to it. Maybe I'm just very, very lucky, but I, I don't have that. I, I think there is kind of a false belief that, um, you know, it, it ties back to me. There's lots of stuff where people will talk about, you know, the media that we consume as if we are only consumers, um, as if we just sure. absorb stuff uncritically and are doomed to like play out all the stuff that we learned from that TV show we watched or whatever. Um, when that's not how it works, people are prosumers. They consume and produce simultaneously in this cycle and they change things and they, you know, and they think about things and, you know, you can like a show, but also be critical of the show. It's, it's, it's all kind of mixed together. And I think, I think that I certainly sit within that zone of like, I enjoy watching Matt Mercer run a game. I enjoy watching any number of DMs run a game, Brennan Lee Mulligan, you know, but I don't sit there going, ah, how can I be more like that? Um, so yeah. maybe I'm just lucky. I've run at a few conventions now. And so what I try to do is mimic the players. All right. If I'm running for a group of strangers, I will see how they are interacting with the game. If they are excited, I try to get just a little bit more excited than they are. If that means I'm up running around the table and making a fool of myself and flopping down on the floor and doing all sorts of weird acrobatics, then that's what we do to make a fun game for those players. That, that seems like we're talking about table, playing with kids again suddenly. <laughs> Mm. Yes. Well, no, I mean, these were these were adults that I was running around the table with, but that's a whole different story. Uh, but but if, if it's a table where everyone is like looking at their character sheets and they're interacting and they're communicating with each other very tactically, then I try to mimic that and be very tactical and and uh, resolute in my actions. And, you know, because mm. they want the chess match rather than the big act. So give them the chess match, even if I couldn't compete with them in any way, shape or form in terms of that chess match of tactics, I can pretend that I did. Mm. And I can think and I can hmm, and look at and take my pen and cross things out and give them the act of what they think D&D &D is and they enjoy it even more. Mm. 
Yeah, as a convention GM, you get very good at like very quickly gauging the energy levels and what the players want out of the game uh, and figuring out how to match that. Um, and it's different like every table that you run. Like I might run two, two or three tables in a day. And I remember one, one game I ran, two gents uh, rocked up and uh, one of their characters was named Johnson and the other one's character was also named Johnson. Johnson and this was the most <laughs> hilarious thing in the world to the two these two dudes and I was I like right this is going to be hard. yeah yeah exactly I was like this is going to be one of those sort of games and then the next session was a bunch of people who were like no my my character is an elf who is uh, Elthanar and I, you know, carry my father's sword with me and this reminds me of my stoic gen. I'm like, okay, this is going to be that sort of game instead. Um, so gauging what players want in a con is, uh, is, a, is a skill that you pick up pretty quickly. Um, this really brings us, I think, to one of the hardest questions to answer about D&D, which is where does the GM's personal preference fit into the equation? Mm. Um that's something that I've been grappling with at, at my home game recently, uh, because I think prior to COVID, I I had kind of fallen into a mindset where I, I and, and this is for a home game, which is a very different thing from a con game or a game being paid professionally run, where it's like, okay, I, I am going to exclusively kind of match the energy of my players. Mm. And my, my current group is a group that like, that doesn't work on them uh, because they really want to know what what i'm interested in mm. uh which is such a such a weird sort of bit of like like static feedback for me it's like ah you care about me you care about my interests and my my uh, my, my inspiration as a gm i i better make sure i know what that is all of a sudden uh and so you know i i look into you know directly into my own inspirations and have to dig it out rather than just reacting to the the energy of the other players um and, and that's such a different beast from when you're at a con game you don't know these people at all and you want to make sure that you match their energy because you're gonna you're gonna be running four more tables today and if you flop this one it's gonna you know it's gonna kill your spirit for the rest of the day <laughs> and, uh yeah. I, I had one con game experience uh running for kobold press not one game but one sort of convention weekend and uh i basically decided yeah I'm not going to do this for a while because uh, I was so I was so wrapped up in making it be the perfect game. It's like I, I can't be so perfectionist about this or I'll lose my mind. I, I stopped being a quote unquote professional DM because it was killing my passion for the game because I was never mm. able to run D&D the way I wanted to run D&D. It mm. had to match with what the players wanted in some capacity because they were paying for the experience. And I'm, you know, in that same token, like I had a couple of uh, GMs that worked for me and so I would try to match the GM style to what the players wanted out of the game um, because I think uh, at some capacity, you know, the players have to be buying what you're selling in terms of how you run your game. Um, but, uh, yeah, con games, it's not even just that it's like this group of players versus this, uh, you know, your home group, but it's also this is a one-shot, this is a like a singular mm -hmm. experience versus mm -hmm. this is an ongoing campaign um, and what that's going to be like. And I'm a very big proponent that the GM is not a slave to the player's whims, you know. When I said yeah. earlier, yeah. don't judge the moral... Um, the moral actions of your player characters, 
I stand by that, but I also think as a GM, you're within your right to say to players, let's not torture any NPCs, you know, or I I would like you to try to avoid, you know, murdering babies or like whatever it happens to be that as the GM, you don't want to have to role play out on the other side of the screen. Yeah. I think a good point with all of this too is you don't have to be perfect as a DM. Uh, even if you're running for money, even if you are running at a convention, uh, most players are just so happy to be playing that they just want you to present present a challenge and let them answer the challenge. They want you to set loose a framework for a story and let them play within that framework. Uh, so don't worry about doing everything just right. Sometimes it's just ask the question and let the players do their thing. And, and that's okay too. You know, the, the, the word isn't copying or like being like, I want to be like that, but being inspired by and being like, that's, you know, I, I feel like I want to be on that energy level when I run the game. And I think that there's a lot of anxiety around like, try to be like Matt Mercer. Don't try to be like Matt Mercer. Be like this. Don't be like this. Always say yes to your players. It's okay to sometimes say no to your players. Don't give too long descriptions. Make sure you hit at least three uh, of the main senses when you're describing a room, you know? And it's kind of like you're getting all these mixed messages kind of coming back and forth about how to be a, a good dungeon master. And I think the answer is find your niche, find what works for you, find what makes you happy when you play the game. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've got the the old... Colville adage which is you know take the stuff you like and put it in your game and frequently Mm. we use that to talk about like content right take the cool fantasy stuff that you enjoy and stick it in your world but also in terms of like dming and the externals of the game you can you can take the stuff you like you can watch matt mercer and brennan lee mulligan and all these people and you can take the you can go you know what more monster noises would be cool i like that (laughs) i'm gonna start putting that in my game you can just take bits you don't have to emulate the whole thing yeah for sure I think I find uh, Matt Colville's advice videos are very liberating because there are a lot of um, they seem to go against the grain of what typical advice tends to be. He's done videos on like, yeah, it's fine to say no to your players or like, you know, it's fine to to have strict boundaries around like how the different um, heritages and cultures work within your campaign setting. And I'm like, oh, it's so nice to hear that, <laughs> you know, speaking of GMing uh, and how to be good at it. Uh, We had a question come in this week from Frank uh, who emailed podcast at ghostfiregaming.com and asked this question, which you can also email and ask away. Uh, And their question was around handling session recaps um, and having a a sort of definitive start to your D&D game, uh, saying that they used to struggle a little bit, have rambling recaps, try to get the players to, to say one thing that happened at the start of last session and it just really was struggling to bring the players focus to the game when everybody's getting up and getting food and opening snacks and finding their character sheet and all that kind of jazz um, and found that the advice from uh, the lazy GM helped in writing out like a narrative start to the game, like almost like your own boxed text recap and start to the game or narrating out from the villain's perspective what happened in the last session. Um, James, how do you open your games of, uh, of D&D? I do literally that, um, except I didn't get that advice from the lazy DM. I got that advice from Chris Perkins in his fourth edition uh, uh, blog series. Mm. Um, so this this advice has good pedigree. Mm. Um, it's it's basically yeah, fill one sheet of eight and a half by eleven notebook paper 
at most with a recap like you would see on previously on on an episode of you know whatever ongoing series and uh i i would say to to add to this growing bit of advice is don't be afraid to spoil things a little bit uh, because honestly for me this recap is like 70% of my prep for every game because it just refreshes my brain and gets my improvisational brain firing again. And you want to give that to your players as much as we want to be surprising and ah, I bet you didn't expect that, did you, players? That villain from 35 sessions ago is still alive. Um, sometimes a, a show you know, previously on Avatar is like, it will spoil that, oh, they referenced that episode from season one. Well, I'll bet yeah. the villain from that episode in season one is coming back. And while that can be frustrating as a television viewer, where it is kind of nice to be surprised that way, the players are not just the audience of this game. They're also their actors and giving them the chance to think about, oh, what will I do if that villain shows up again? What, what happened in that game? Oh, yeah, that I, I, I killed his lieutenant and made a necklace out of his teeth. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's like, I'll, I'll bet I need to get that ready to show to him when he comes back because that'll be a big part of my intimidation check. It just makes your game better. It makes them more able to role play improvisationally. Uh, yeah, don't don't hamstring your players by by concealing too much from them. It will actually help your game a huge amount. Uh, I have developed a, a sort of a ritual of sorts based actually bizarrely on like every blog that gives you advice on how to start um, running, like exercising, like going for a run every day, oh. how, how to get into the habit of it. I was waiting um, for the D&D at the end of your running. Yeah. No, no, I mean physically. Um, right. Yeah, they uh, they have this piece of advice that, that came up a couple of times, so I thought it might actually work and I've enjoyed it thus far. Um, the idea of setting up a habit it, that you, um, they say for running, play the same playlist at the same time every day in the same order. So don't put it on shuffle because if you play it in the same order, your brain will start to recognize, oh, when that song plays, it's time to do this thing. And I've applied it to lots of habit building in my life. But one of those habits is when my players arrive and we're getting ready for a game, I've gotten each oh. of my players to submit a song to a playlist that represents their character and then I finish up the playlist with um, a, a song that represents the team as a whole and the game as a whole. And when that song plays, it means, okay, it's time to, we're, we're about to start. Um, and I, I've enjoyed it. I think it's fun. I can't speak to, you know, whether it actually is or isn't effective, but um, I, <laughs> I like doing it. Have you found it to be effective? I haven't found it to be ineffective. Ineffective. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I think I think in my experience, I would say it it seems to be effective, but I'm also a very small sample size. Um, gotcha. But I also think it's a, a fun enough uh, method. I don't think there's anything to lose with doing that. Um, and then, as far as a, a session recap, I I like lots of different ideas and do what works for you. But I have found it um, swifter and uh, less tricky to just have one voice give the the recap and often that will be me. Yeah, that's uh, I love that music advice because I'll often, uh, the attempt was to start when the music goes on, when the fantasy music starts playing, that's when we'll sit down and play. But I found it's just become a bit of a background thing because it is like put it on shuffle or it is non-vocal, like, you know, just nice kind of uh, fantasy music. And so it's just become this thing that's on in the background while people are still uh, getting themselves ready. So I like the... Uh, yeah, the, sort of uh, a... 
more specificity. The ramp up that you you go. Yeah. Okay, well. <laughs> Reminds me when I used to work in a bar. Closing time always meant the bar was about to close, so everybody closing would like time. all the staff would go yay when that song came on. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, what about you? What's your pre-game uh, ritual to get the players ready in the headspace? It normally my home games we we will eat as a group beforehand and and chat and how's your day how was your week how are how's your family but then that will go on forever unless we do something to get ourselves uh ready and in education there's this uh concept called the anticipatory set which is do something to transition in from whatever you were doing to the next lesson and so I try to think of it in terms of that. What are we going to be doing and what can I do or say to get the players out of that mindset of I'm still finishing my pizza and I'm still talking with my friends to, all right, it's time to tend to do this. If, if we're going to be doing a combat right away, it will be everybody roll a 20 sider. And on this card, tell me what your first action is going to be if you're fighting this combat and immediately that's something very different. That's not something I do every time, but right. Have the players do something. And then I will as little as possible say what they need to know to move into the next thing. Uh, Often they will fill in the blanks themselves once we get going. But I also have a group that is very, they sometimes get out of focus very easily. So Mm. I can't risk reading too much text before they're going to be their attention's going to be wandering. So yeah, I try to tailor whatever that transition will be based on what is coming. Uh, if it's going to be something that's going to be long and drawn out, then I try to give them something active to do to keep their minds busy while I'm talking. Yeah, gotcha. This is a bit of a left of field question, but it's just occurred to me as each of you were were talking. Sean, how often do you play? Do you have a weekly game? Is it a monthly game? Is it kind of irregular? It is supposed to be once every two weeks, uh, but that often gets pushed down the road for a ways. And we try (laughs) to do it in person as opposed to online because we are having online game fatigue right now. Uh, So we're trying to to do it in person as much as possible. Yeah, I've got the exact same thing. Sorry, James. Relatable. I have an out of left field question to ask you. You you just said a left of field question. Is that is that the Australian way of saying that idiom? No, I we might say, have no, just. No, no, no. We definitely oh, okay. do say left of field. Left of field. Yeah. Because here in America, that's a baseball idiom. Yeah. An out of left field question. I mean, like we we know out of left field, but yeah. I, I'm pretty sure, Ben, that the common phrasing is left of field. <laughs> Interesting. Sorry, this has nothing to do with D&D. I just love these little <laughs> so many differences we bump into. <laughs> Yeah, I, I honestly I was not paying that much attention to what I said, and sometimes my partner has a hilarious what if I'm habit lying? of um... now I'm guessing. <laughs> oh, no. Second guessing reality. I'm pretty sure. No, no, it, it's perfectly possible. My um my fiance has rubbed off on me because she will often forget what something is, and to bring it back into a D and D context, she once referred to murder hobos. She forgot that term and instead called them killer hillbillies, which. <laughs> I just think is the most hilarious alternative. It maintains the assonance. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I enjoy exactly, it, right? exactly. Um, speaking of killer hillbillies, uh, uh, we need to go right now because there might be, I don't know, uh, complete um, segue fall down there. But this is going to be the end of the Eldritch Lawcast uh, for this week. Um, if you want to send us an email just as... Frank did. You can send us an email to podcast at ghostfiregaming.com um, or you can also reach us on our handles at uh, which are just below our names. Um, it did just occur to me with the streaming next week, if you want to join again, um, uh, I'll just shout out those time zones one more time. 7pm uh, Eastern Daylight Time, 4pm Pacific and 9am uh, Australian Eastern Standard Time. Um, sometimes we do have to change the recordings around pardon me, depending on if somebody's going to be away one week or if somebody, uh, or if there's a public holiday or something like that. Um, but I will try to, uh, keep people up to date and notified on my Twitter as to when there's a change in, uh, the, the streaming schedule. But as I said, come the hang normal, out with us. come hang out, come play come with us. <laughs> we want to talk us. to you. Come be a, <laughs> a, uh, a, um, an honorary <laughs> fifth or sixth, uh, podcast host. Um, uh, that being said, uh, we will see you next week. Like, subscribe, five stars, do all the things because it helps the podcast grow. And we will see you next week, possibly live. Possibly live. Yeah, if you choose to. <laughs> or maybe that. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Mecca. Sort of like yeah. border between the two. <laughs>